Hey there, this is episode 62 of the Untangled Faith podcast. In today's episode, Josh Buck joins me to talk about everyday activism and how learning about King Jesus radicalized him. We talk about faith, justice, and politics, and I bet you'll learn something new. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. A few weeks ago, I was contacted by the publicist for Josh Buck to ask if I would be interested in having him on the podcast. He gave me a brief overview of the work that Josh has been doing, as well as a glimpse into his new book. And I knew Josh would be a great fit for my listeners. Many of us have been sold a lot of lines over the years about justice and politics and faith. And many of us have come to wonder if what we so easily believed about the right way to engage for the good of our neighbors is actually true. I also have a feeling you're exhausted. You want to engage for good, but you don't know how to hold this alongside all the other things you're holding. If this resonates at all, keep listening. I think you'll appreciate my conversation with Josh Buck. Josh, as I was... Looking at your background, I would love for you to introduce yourself to my audience of how you got here. I know you're an author. I know you work with this um, PAX and that you have done some really interesting work for your PhD dissertation. So how did you get here today with a a book, a a brand new book here? Yeah, you know, um, I talk about this in the, the book a little bit. And by the way, thanks so much, Amy, for having me on. I was born in a Christian context. I was born in the South and grew up in the Northwest, attended a church that was planted out of a Billy Graham crusade, um, family life center, big buildings, you know, great preaching, huge child care, Kind of that that form of white evangelicalism in a, a town, Auburn, Washington, a church called Grace. And I really loved a lot of what I came into. Um, and I moved to California to go to Bible college, a new Bible college outside of Los Angeles called Eternity. And I was discovering a different Jesus than I had known growing up. A I very wrote that different- down. I wrote that down. <laughs> That's so curious to me. You've found a different Jesus by digging into the Gospels and going to Bible college. Yeah, digging into the Gospels and doing really the hard work of historical analysis. And also it had to do with traveling and understanding how people follow Jesus from different cultures and different situations. And that was a big part of a big part of my journey. And coming to a place where Jesus uh, really cares for people, especially who are disenfranchised, marginalized who are suffering, who are having a difficult time, who are poor and poor in spirit and mm-hmm. and realizing that this is central to the call of the gospel and discovering Luke 4, where Jesus on his own terms talks about the gospel. And this really setting me on a path of radical discipleship that Jesus can't be this very docile, 
um, person when he's a radical political leader taking on all of these biblical titles that are incredible, like I am and king and Messiah and son of man and uh, mobilizing a group of people to completely change the world, not just show up to church on Sunday, be nice, maybe give 10 percent. And just care about your personal life and being a better, better person. As important as all of those things are, like tithing and going to church, that it's so much more than that. It's it's so much more expansive than that. The vision of the gospel of Jubilee that it, it is social life and spiritual flourishing. Yeah, I would imagine some people are afraid that they're going to send their kids off to a secular college and they're going to be radicalized at the secular college, but you went to a Bible college or a Christian college and it was Jesus and his story that radicalized you. I do think the more that you get to know Jesus, it's going to affirm your culture and it's going to reject and subvert your, your culture, the family you come from, the people you come from. And that happened to Jesus himself. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there were certain things that I think were like coming home to growing up in America and being white and, and like what that means in affirmation for missions, for instance, like that we care about the world, we care about the nations and we love people who are different from us. But there certainly were other things where it's like, oh, wow, what does this mean about our daily engagement, the things we talk about, um, the clothes we buy, what what job we're trying to get, the food we eat, what coffee we drink, like all of a sudden God has set us on a path of discipleship that really matters. And then from there to answer your question kind of about school and travel, I mean, going overseas and and really uh, uh, living in Africa for a while and wrestling with, you know, what's my call? What do I want to do? And moving to a city to plant a church with my wife and uh, uh, my, my daughter, Ahana, at that point. And yeah, the, the PhD work that I recently completed is an outflow of God's desire for all of us, no matter what degree we're getting, no matter what station of our life, to actually make a difference. And so with me in the academy, I interviewed the survivors of the Charleston Massacre and specifically two mm-hmm. pastors, two reverends who lost loved ones in the Charleston Massacre. If you don't know what that is, Google it. <laughs> it's horrifying, but it's where a white kid named Dylan Ruth, who went to church, by the way, an evangelical Lutheran church with his family decided to go to historically African-American church mm-hmm. in um, the South to start, to start a race war. And he killed almost everybody in that Bible study. And I wanted to understand the impact it had on the lives of those people um, that lost loved ones. So I sat down to hear their stories and to hear what faith means to them coming out of that and walking through indirect racial violence. Um, And so that's part of my path of trying to be an everyday activist is no matter what I'm doing, what I'm writing, what class I'm taking, what I'm doing during my day is to try and make a difference in the world. Yeah. It was really fascinating to me to hear about the way you did that research. And like, I, I bet you have just the most fascinating information that you get from having those conversations with people. Um, There was something, there was a quote that I heard you say um, and in a podcast that I listened to, and I had to write it down because it just jumped out at me. And you're probably like, what did I say? I don't even remember. Um, You said, I'm a white guy trying to live a just life. Tell me a little bit about that. Now, this isn't like a part of your book that I that jumped out, but I think it relates. And a lot of people, a lot of my listeners are white and they also are grappling with how do I live a just life? I have realized that 
my life looks very different than people of color and my my struggles are very different um i don't have a lot of the barriers that that people of color have um so tell me what it has felt like and looked like for you to be a white guy trying to live a just life yeah such a wonderful question i think first and foremost it's so important for all people, but especially white people that live in kind of dominant culture. That is to say, everything's judged against Anglo-Saxon culture because we live in a settler society where we settled and we took over and the roads and the streets and the buildings have been made for us to flourish. And so yeah. we have to just acknowledge like our ethnic heritage and the benefits it has given us yeah. inherently being here in in North America um, and the United States in specific. So the first step for any Christian is to understand the social like, location that God has given them. It does relate to the book because I'm writing from a white perspective, primarily yeah. to a white audience saying, how do we wrestle with doing the work of justice and mercy when so much has been given to us? Yeah. And the solution is actually very simple. Follow this brown-skinned Jewish Messiah enter a cross-cultural relationship with a rabbi that speaks Hebrew mm -hmm. to understand how to follow this Middle Eastern story and to follow this Middle Eastern man into a new tomorrow mm. and into a brighter into a brighter world. And so it has to do with going, okay, um, I'm not allowed to translate Jesus into my culture. Right. I'm supposed to be humble enough to figure out how his radical teachings apply to my culture. I can't make Jesus white. Yeah. I can't do that. I can't make Jesus a colonizer. I can't make Jesus a, somebody who's okay with the settler society because read the story of Jesus. He's not okay with those things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's so much of the message of the book for white folks in particular is how do we follow a brown skinned Jewish Messiah? As Paul says, we are grafted into this beautiful Jewish narrative. How do we do that properly? Yeah. And it is to follow Jesus on a daily basis and the radical teachings of Jesus. Yeah. So tell me about that. Like how, how why is it so important for us to understand that cultural aspect, like the cultural historical context of where all the, where Jesus lived and taught, how is that influenced as you had put together your ideas for this book? Yeah, for me, when I was in Bible college, it was very startling. I talk about this in my introduction of the book, going, wow, Jesus was a disruptor. And Jesus was somebody who wasn't okay with the status quo. Mm -hmm. And this is somebody like working outside the halls of power and privilege, not from within the Roman or Jewish establishment to start a movement in the world. And it's important for me to meet Jesus on his own terms. And even though we don't live in a, a, um, in a society that values the book like we do the screen and our phone and movies, yeah. that's the pinnacle of artistic expression in our culture is film. That's why we're like, are they going to make it into a movie? They don't say it's a great movie. Are they going to turn it in, into a book? <laughs> <clears throat> we don't talk about it like that. And but we got to get to know the Bible. We have to get to know the text, and to do that, mm -hmm. we have to we have to understand the story of God, and then we have to understand the person that the story revolves around, which is King Jesus. And and across the world, when artists paint Jesus, 
they have a habit of painting Jesus in the image of the people that they come from. So no surprise, in Korea, Jesus will look Korean. In Japan, mm. Jesus will look Japanese. In, in Africa, Jesus will look African. Well, in, for white folks, Jesus will look white. And there's a truth in that, that we are all made in the image of God. So Anglo-Saxon people have also been given the Imago Day, which I speak about in chapter yeah. one of my book. Um, but it's important to know that Jesus was born into his culture and his time. So even though we've all been made in the image of God, we're following a Jewish Lord. And so what does it look like to follow this person in America? And that takes time and energy to actually do that. And if we remove the political, the cultural, or the social context of the New Testament, we will whiteify Jesus immediately. Mm. Immediately, you translate him into endorsing your life and your lifestyle, where um, that, you know God became flesh on purpose to teach us how to be human mm. and to follow him. So one example is when Paul is writing an epistle, Paul comes from an honor-shame culture and a collectivist culture. That is to say, people are more concerned with maintaining honor and status and not being dishonored within their social group and their social setting. Now, the vast majority of people who are going to preach Colossians 1 or like Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, I picked that randomly. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody sitting in the audience who's white is going to be interpreting the sermon individually. And that's the assumption is what does Romans, what does Colossians mean for my life individually, where in a collectivist culture and in an honor shame culture, it's going to be far more about how does this passage impact the collective? In fact, the mm -hmm. letters were written to co collective groups of people. The vast majority of the New Testament is written to a collective outside of like a few books like Philemon, the pastoral epistles. Yeah. Okay. And so that, that's where we immediately can get it wrong. Another thing is when you read the book of Luke, which is what this is couched in, the whole book is within this framework of Jubilee. And this Jubilee is this rich Old Testament story that starts in Leviticus 25. We see it being Messianic in Isaiah 61. And then Jesus picks it up in Luke 4 to be the manifesto for his entire gospel and his entire ministry. And we, majority culture Christians, can easily skip over the message that, is, that he's teaching to wealthy people, to comfortable people, to mm -hmm. rich people. We skip over it quickly and easily. Yeah. And like we often read it as, you know, read scripture as ourselves being the hero in every story with others too. So that idea too of the collective as opposed to the individual because we are very individualistic in American white evangelical American culture we're very we talk about this individual relationship with Jesus too and I just I just had a conversation with Tracy Rhodes who has been talking and in, in reading about all sorts of different Christian denominations and spiritual practices and you know she was like I think it came from a good place this idea of an individual relationship but we have forgotten that we exist in a collective. And I don't know if she actually used that word, but like in community is it's just not about working out our faith by ourselves. It, it, it can't really work out much. It's so good. And, and Amy, within activist circles and within circles of people who really care about justice and mercy, 
we can easily become hypercritical of systems. And I talk about this in the book, the cultural systems that we're a part of, whether it's work or, or there's government politics, there's church and religion, and, and we can become really critical of those spaces. Yet I wrote a chapter, one of the last ones on mobilization, where Christians can't get away from being in community and doing the work of justice with other people. Mm-hmm. Said another way, we can't bag church just because church is broken. Mm-hmm. In this cultural moment, that's one of the dangers we have as people who are advocates of justice and mercy. Jesus was the advocate, capital T-H-E, of justice and mercy, and he died to create a world-changing community that we, a world-changing community that we call the church, not a club, not a carrier of political ideology, not acting like Jesus is apolitical because he was king, but we mobilize with this group of people to change the world. You are probably the second or third person who has like reminded that that message of a lot of us are like, burn it down. It's a disaster. If those systems weren't there, we would really feel it. That works really well with what you said, like working within a system doesn't sound sexy. It doesn't sound radical, but there is something to be said for a way to get the job done. You know, for your for your audience, I'd love to speak to the postures, the three postures that we can take within our families or towards government or in our churches. There's three yeah. types of social change that I talk about in chapter three. And it's important for people to figure out what kind of change am I called to bring mm-hmm. in this moment with my capacity, with my friends, with my time. I'm busy and broken. What do I do? And the three types of change, the first is gradual change to say, okay, I'm a part of this church. I'm a part of this community. I'm a part of this nonprofit. I'm a part of this business. And I I want this place to be uh, filled with justice and mercy, to be an embodiment of the gospel in the world, not Christianized, but a place that treats people with dignity and respect. How do I do that? And the gradual change is to say, I'm going to work within the leadership structure and I'm going to win people over and get buy-in and I'm going to try and get to... 40% 40% buy-in and then the snowball will roll down the hill and yeah, and it takes five years, but you make incremental gradual change. So that's gradual change. And, and the, here's the key with that one um, without leadership buy-in, it still probably won't happen. And two, it's all about the equilibrium. People care more about like the security of the organization over change, which means yeah. it's going to have to happen really slowly. The second type is radical change or quick change. Now, this is where it's such an unjust system, yeah, yeah, family or work environment or church that God does not desire things to happen slowly. So this is Jesus going into the temple and flipping tables going, yeah. this is so wrong that I'm going to send a radical signal that it needs to change right now. Mm. Okay. And that's radical change. And that's where who cares about the equilibrium if this thing falls apart that's okay because it's so wrong and unjust. This is Jesus saying in, in the letters in Revelation, I'm going to remove the lampstand if this doesn't change. He's like, you guys need some radical change right now. Yeah. And then the third one is to start a new thing. It's too toxic to do slow change. Nobody's going to agree to quick change or radical change. So it's like, I'm going to be a part of something new. And what I would say is you can't not participate in the organizations and culture around you. It's impossible. Yeah. So it's, it's critical that we find a church, we find a family, we find a group of friends 
we find a space that we can flourish in and help others access the gospel of Jubilee, that is spiritual life and all the yeah. things that I grew up learning about, forgiveness of our sins and, and, and coming into the family of God and reconciling with God through Christ. And then there's the social flourishing piece, which is that we are all valued as image bearers of God equally. Josh and I had a lot of things that we talked about as we dug into some of the themes of the book that he wrote, Everyday Activism, Following Seven Practices of Jesus to Create a Just World. And one of these chapters that we didn't really get a chance to dig in on was talking more about the idea of the gospel of Jubilee. He also said that two things help us to understand the gospel of Jubilee as a foundation for everyday activism. First, the gospel of Jubilee declares that we can receive spiritual life. Second, the gospel of Jubilee declares that everyone should have access to social flourishing. And he had went on to say that oftentimes in our churches, we do this thing where we have a disjointed understanding of the gospel as opposed to a holistic gospel. And the disjointed gospel separates out the individual and the collective and the spiritual and the social, whereas the holistic gospel, which is this gospel of Jubilee, has all of these things together. The individual and the collective are together. The spiritual and the social are together. All of it is happening at one time. I hope that helps to clarify a little bit of some of the terms that we're discussing as we have this conversation. Mm, that's so good. So I, I would say one of the hard things is that we like to have this line, invisible or otherwise, it says, this is political, this is social, and this is spiritual. You argue from the very first page of your book that justice has been a part of God's design from the very beginning of creation. So how would you, how would you combat that? Like, Hey, you are getting political on me, Josh, and I just want to follow Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's a very, um, it's, that's, it's actually a white and I'm white. Okay. So I'm not saying white in a derogatory way, right? but that's a white trope or that's a white saying, uh, uh, that, you know, I, I want to follow Jesus. I don't want to get political. Now, the problem with that is if you follow King Jesus, then you are political by the very nature of your belief system. Yeah. And the entire group of disciples the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, the Romans, the regular Jewish person all understood the movement of the church to be political in nature, mm. to be an alternative political community. Now, this is stuff I want to write on in a second book. Yeah. Because I don't, I don't talk about it as much in this book, but what's important for people to know, and I get at this in the very beginning, like you said, of the book is if Jesus is carrying these Jewish titles of I am, son of man, Messiah, Lord, King, those are inherently political. And then we are told that we are co-heirs with Christ. So that means we are ruling and reigning. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father right now, and we are co-heirs with him, and we will rule and reign as political beings in the new heavens and new earth. What does that mean now that the church is an alternative political community and that we follow Jesus and that we must engage politically, but we don't define politics like the world defines 
politics. Talk, talk to me about that. Cause I was going to ask that when people think politics, they think voting, they think debating, they think ugly, um, uh, partisanship for sure and i think this is a big problem so the the myth before i get to like how we define it the myth that we suffer from in america and this is really around the world is we we allow our nation to define for us what politics is so that mm-hmm. means politics is uh our sacred text the constitution <laughs> the cultural symbol of the flag um the 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 liturgies of the national anthem and and Pledge of Allegiance and crossing your hand over your heart. These are the yeah. religious and political symbols that we that we latch on to. And then and then it becomes for us, this is what it means to be political, is to do these things and engage these things. And then the two-party system, we're we're forced to choose uh for our political party platform person, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so that's the myth because with Jesus. All of his disciples were faced with a choice. I'm going to join the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Essenes or the Zealots, or I'm going to join the Romans. And all of them had those political choices. And then there were their average Jewish person who's like, I'm too busy and broken. I can't join and be a part of any of these political things. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were deeply hurting and oppressed. Okay. And Jesus said, I'm creating an alternative political community called the church. And so instead of politics being defined through the legislative process in a nation, politics should be defined as promoting human flourishing as we organize. So that could be anything. That sounds lovely, promoting human flourishing. So guess what? The church is a community that organizes for human flourishing. Communion promotes human flourishing. Baptism promotes human flourishing. Preaching, prayer groups, house church, uh, uh, community development work all promotes human flourishing through organizing. And so then our identity rooted in King Jesus and his organization, the church, is an alternative political witness. It is our social ethic. It's not uh, something different. The church is our starting point as we engage politically. And the human flourishing is is a very different picture than conquering the other side. Yes, and uh, I touch Winning. on this at the, very, the very end of my book because the book's all about like no matter where you are in life, you can make social change and you can change yeah. the world and go do it, like in your workplace and all this. Yeah. But our measure of success is not power, resources or the ability to coerce, tell people what to do, or they get fired. Yeah. Our measure of success is, are we centered on loving Jesus? Are we being faithful to follow King Jesus, come what may? Mm. And that's a very different measure of success, because when you get into the American political realm, it's about power, violence, coercion, and resources, and manipulation. And we see that right now playing out. Yet the church is not allowed to play by those rules. That's why Jesus, and I talk about this in the chapter on empowerment. The story where the mom of the disciples come to Jesus and says, can, can they sit at your right and left hand? <laughs> yeah. Like, are you going to drink my cup? And they're like, of course we will. And then the disciples get upset because they're like, 
dude, you're like, you're trying to get favor behind the scenes because they think that the politics of Jesus is about power, mm -hmm. violence, coercion, and being honored publicly in front, in front of millions of people. That's what they, they were thinking of the son of man. And Jesus pointed at all of the Romans and all the people around says it will not be so among us. And that is our political mandate as Christians. Yeah, I like what you said there about what the measurement of being faithful looks like. Okay, you sold me that things are broken, but I'm a one, one person. <laughs> yeah. I, I am a little overwhelmed. And isn't it just a big dumpster fire? Oh, and man. maybe Jesus is going to come back anyways and fix it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think there's something deeply biblical and longing for Jesus to return. And I also want to address anybody listening to this who has lived a very difficult life where maybe you've experienced marginalization or abuse, yeah. or maybe you come from a wealthy family, but you've been through some horrible situations where like men or or uh, a pastor has just drugged you through the mud and you're mm -hmm. in a spot where you're like broken. And you're like, really, I need to engage to change the world. And what I would communicate to that person is that Jesus is there for you. Jesus is for the brokenhearted, is for the person who is suffering and having a hard time. And this is the person who Jesus is close to. And the problem with the activist culture is that you need to be Instagram famous and posting about one issue all the time. That's your issue or you need to be out picketing, or you have to get the right degree and in international diplomacy or whatever. And what Jesus is telling you is, yeah, long for Jesus to return, but you don't have to radically change your day to make a mm -hmm. difference. Yeah. Stay where you are in your station of life, mm -hmm. whether you're going to school, whether you're a single mom, whether you're taking care of kids at home, whether you're someone like me shuttling my kids to sports and like I'm trying to figure out nonprofit stuff and how do I... How do I do more school? All of these things that from that place and space, you can actually make a difference. Mm -hmm. And I would say activists teeter, Amy, between and people who have a heart for justice and mercy, which I can tell you're one of them. We teeter between despair and hope mm -hmm. and giving up. With, it's a dumpster fire. And like, let's go clean the dumpster. <laughs> and. I, I, I want to communicate to people, it's actually a very normal thing for people that have a deep care in the world, uh, a deep care for the world to feel that way. I want to validate that and say, yeah. Jesus is there for you in the despair, and he affirms your heart to get to work when, when you have the hope. Yeah. The the um, subtitle of your book talks about the seven, is it the seven practices of Jesus? I'd love to hear you talk about like a, a summary. I know like that's the whole book, right? If you could give like a high level, high level summary of what are these practices? And I mean, I have hope now that I, I don't need to like completely upend my life as I know it in order to take part in these practices. Yeah. And that's really the goal is that Jesus taught parables often to the masses. And these were people who like couldn't switch jobs. They, they couldn't be like, oh, I want to be a part of a different family or I want to move to Europe or something like that. <laughs> no. Wait, I live in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> no. They were like, yeah. I got to go back to my life after I hear this story and this weird yeah. argument that happened between Jesus and the lawyer. 
And so I give seven radical practices to create a just world. And the point is, and there's an icon assigned to each of these for us to remember what they are. So when you get in the book, the beginning of the chapter will have this icon to really fix us. And the first one I'll just say is, is love. And I talk about in, in the chapter how Jesus defines love and neighbor love for us that really contradicts the way that we think about neighboring in the Western world. And so mm-hmm. the parable of the Good Samaritan, I won't get into it, pick up the book or just pick up your Bible and mm-hmm. Google parable of the Good Samaritan because it's incredible. And within the parable, Jesus offers a vision of neighboring that is radical that the crowds didn't like, that the Jewish leaders didn't like. They had a hard time with that he would place an enemy of the Jews as the hero of the story, ministering to somebody who his own people wouldn't even help. And so we talk about how how can you apply this neighbor love on a daily basis? Because the cool thing about the parable of the Good Samaritan, it was an ordinary story and situation. Like people ended up dead on this journey because it was a dangerous road. And people were forced with the decision, do I help them today in my everyday life? And this is what's so beautiful about the gospel is it it teaches us and transforms us to be agents of change right where where we are at. Mm -hmm. Because we can do that loving thing wherever we are. Wherever we are. So the way that the book is laid out is that I, I establish the foundation for justice and mercy by discussing the gospel of Jubilee Mm, and the gospel of Jubilee from Luke four is spiritual life and social flourishing. So that's where we talk about like in the West, it's either one or the other. It's either spiritual or physical. It's like social justice or saving souls, right? Or whatever. And when we get to Jesus, he presents a holistic gospel. This is a gospel that accounts for individuals and the collective for the social and the spiritual. And And once we accept that the gospel is about this jubilee, then we can't be off the hook in terms of helping our neighbor and loving people around us. We we have a holistic gospel that is radical to us in our daily life. And then from there, I say, now that we know that the gospel is holistic and it's this gospel of jubilee, this spiritual life and social flourishing, let's get into these seven practices of Jesus and on this foundation, these are the seven practices like nonviolence, mm-hmm. forgiveness, empowerment, love, mobilization, truth-telling. These are the seven practices that we need to bring into our everyday life. Some of those on that list surprised me. Um, or or I think, oh, I think people are going to feel like uncomfortable. Um Nonviolence, for one, I think is a conversation that in the the white world, especially the white evangelical world, we've been so tied to like, yay, military, yay, strong might. Um, But nonviolence isn't just about war. It's about uh, more than that. Talk to me a little bit about like the conversations you've had or, or how you have been influenced to live out that um, practice of nonviolence in your life. Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. And this is the one there's, I would say the two that 
I would say folks on that are conservative aren't going to like the nonviolence chapter and folks that are really progressive are going to have a hard time with the forgiveness chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are two that Jesus comes at us regardless of what we've been through yeah. and yeah. maybe what Christian camp we find ourselves in yeah. and I you can't get away from it. So the nonviolence one, Amy, uh, I think at the foundation, when I learned about Jesus teaching about nonviolence, and then I saw the apostles teach, teach about it too, and then I saw them be unwilling to be violent in their lives, and then I saw the early church applied this ethic across the board for various reasons in different settings, many of them refusing to serve in the military, or if they did, they're like, I'm not going to kill people, but I'll be in the military. Then I was like, oh, dang, that means this is something we have to apply as Christians today. Yeah. And that cuts completely against American Christianity. Now, listen what I said. I said American Christianity, right? Mm -hmm. And so that is to say that Christianity is subsumed or comes under uh, what America has to say. And America does not exist without the justification of epic and tyrannical violence. And so what the Christians who came here to America did, and I don't talk about this in the book, but it's important for people to know, the Christians that came here rode the wave of colonization, which means they connected their Christianity to to colonization. And in order to justify land theft, killing the natives, enslaving Africans, going to war with each other, um, in order to justify that, they came up with theologies to say this is okay. Mm -hmm. And I'll give two examples really quickly. The first one is the doctrine of discovery. Now pick up this book by Mark Charles and Sun Chun Ra, the doctrine of discovery. That is like princes, Protestant and Catholic in Europe said on behalf of Jesus and the kingdom of God, when you see new land, you are allowed to claim it on behalf of Jesus and our crown. Mm. Okay. So that was a theology, malevolent, malevolent theology that justified that. But second, the British, as they were taking over 95% of the world, okay, yep. saw themselves as the conquering Israelites entering the promised land. So when the Puritans and people came here, they were under a theology that said, we are this new Israel, creating this new nation. When you, when you look at all the, all the cities on the East Coast, you got like Bethlehem, mm-hmm. Goshen. Okay, why are, why are they there? Why are they talked about in that way? Well, it's because they saw themselves in place of Israel. Now, that's terrible. In the, in the, in the, um, so why do I say all that? Those are two historical reasons why we yeah. just accept violence as nor- normative. Mm-hmm. And it's something that Jesus rejects out of hand. Right. And there is a history that goes long before the founding of of what we call America, right? That did not involve marrying Christianity to to violence. Right. And I think sometimes we forget about that long, long history that was long before. And I think it is very common to center ourselves in that in the biblical narrative of like we are Jerusalem. We we this is the promised land. And to read all the scriptures through that. It leads to a bit of a mess <laughs> uh, that we've seen, and I think it explains a lot of the um, Christian nationalism that we're seeing and yeah. people embracing it because it's just so ingrained that 
Um, of course, like if we are to like really look at it, we it might unravel some things we don't want it to unravel. And right. and just the long history in people's own lives of of tangling up their politics and and faith for so long, it's really, really hard to say, what do you mean? Of course, if it has the word Christian in front of it, it must be good. Yeah. And doesn't it just mean I'm patriotic? But like, there's so many conversations about uh, what this means. Um, And a a misunderstanding of the fact that of trying to really, truly, honestly understand our cultural background and the history of where we came from doesn't mean that we hate ourselves. It doesn't mean self-loathing. Um, I think it's a call to flourishing. You know, we don't have a full flourishing life if we deny being a part of somebody else's flourishing. If we aren't willing to be like, we're not just denying somebody else. We're denying our own, our own selves. And what can we do now that we know how we got here? What can we do now? Another one of those seven things, truth telling. Yeah, I I would not have put it on the list at all, uh, but I do think we do walk around thinking we're truth tellers, but being afraid to tell the truth in some ways. Talk yeah. to me about how that ended up on your list. Yeah, I will. First, I want to address Amy. It's so good hearing you talk about um, your family and what does it look like for white folks not to be overwhelmed with feeling terrible about themselves and and getting to work and. I would say this, I think it's so important for white folks in general to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And when we get uncomfortable, um, I've noticed we we have such a low tolerance for that space of being uncomfortable that it's like, well, I don't need to be guilty or I don't want to hear it. Or we immediately look for information that will allow us to escape discomfort. Oh, yes, absolutely. And what I would say to that is, it's not easy for me to be uncomfortable. I'll just admit like, it's not fun for me to be uncomfortable. There are many times in my cross cultural marriage or with my kids, or I've made so many mistakes among people of color where like, I need to sit with damage I've caused being uncomfortable, asking for forgiveness and figuring out how to rectify the situation after forgiveness has been extended. And that's a process. Um, And so for any white folks listening, I'm with you. It sucks being uncomfortable. And whatever you're feeling, ask yourself, why am I feeling this? And the gospel and Luke 4 does not allow you when you're uncomfortable to be like, okay, I'm done. Like, it's not, this isn't (laughs) about me. I'm opting out. Yeah. Exactly. We're not allowed to opt out of the conversation um, as we have the power to do. Truth telling. So I would say within the white community in general, we uh, come from a long line of pietists and this in this movement um, of Puritans. And so telling the truth is like fundamental to a lot of people's faith because it's about personal piety. So don't tell a lie. Don't embellish. Don't tell a half truth to get away with it because you want something or tell a story that isn't true because you want to be funny. And there's two there's truth telling in private. And what I talk about in this book is truth telling in public. Mm-hmm. And there is a prophetic movement that um, is born out of 
a lot of non-white communities where telling the truth in public, that is speaking truth to power, is fundamental to the Christian faith. And I, I root that in Jesus, of course, as he says, when men hate you and exclude you and treat mm. you as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day, because that's how the prophets were treated. So yeah. there is this biblical witness of prophets speaking out against injustice and getting killed for it. Yeah. And, and Jesus is a part of that prophetic tradition. Therefore, Christians in the church must be a part of that prophetic tradition. The challenge is in a lot of white spaces, you're trained to be a pastor. You're not trained to speak truth to power. Mm-hmm. You're trained to get a tithe, grow the church, and not make the people um, who are wealthy uncomfortable because they're the person floating the boat. Yeah. And then Jesus comes along and he says, I'm going to be comforting the afflicted and I'm going to afflict the comfortable. And pastors are not trained to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the opposite. And so truth telling is being willing to speak publicly. And I'm not talking about, you got to be at a rally. This could be in your life, in your family, in your workplace. When you see something that is robbing people of human dignity, you're willing to speak up about it. Yeah. It's a consistency that happens, not just, you're willing to live that way and talk that way in all the rooms, whether they're the quiet room with just your closest friends and, and others. Um, I don't know if you read the book, why we did it by Tim Miller. Like he was a Republican strategist and at a certain point he's like, I can't, I just can't with Donald Trump. And he decided to write, uh, a book basically that kind of explained like, why, why did we do it for so long? And why did so many people still stay to the yeah. very end? And I think some of it is the lack of being willing to be truth tellers because for one reason or another, some people wanted to be in the room where it happened. Uh, they had a, they had position and power. They just didn't want to give up. Uh, you know, there is a whole bunch of categories that he gave. It was, it's a fascinating book, but I I think it is interesting that there is justice that is denied when people are not willing to say the hard truth when it might cost them something. That's right. You know, to think, you know, there are all these politicians or, you know, normal people that are willing to say, yeah, this is not right. This isn't, this isn't the way to go privately. Yeah. But to be willing to say it publicly where they might have to take you know, some flag from somebody or that has power and influence and they might lose that. Um, It's a big, it's, it's a big part of creating a a right fighting for a right and just world. Yeah. I'm with you, Amy. And and that's so much of the ministry of Jesus and what he taught his disciples and the ministry of the early church is being willing to be a truth teller in private, but also be a truth teller in public. Yeah. Yeah. What are some practical things that we can do that, you know, baby steps, give us some baby steps. (laughs) I love it. You know, I think people got to get in the gospels. I do think whether you're going to listen to the Bible on audio or get on YouTube, the Bible project and type in gospels or pick up everyday activism or listen to lectures or just actually read the Bible. Yeah. I think it's so critical for you to be with God, the Holy Spirit, say, please help me understand 
Jesus Christ and to start with Luke and start to read and write down questions and circle things you don't get in your Bible and start to do the work. And in uh, my third appendix in the book, it's a, it's a Jesus starter kit. And that is to say for anybody who wants to get to know Jesus better, there are books and resources. And here's the deal. When, when somebody really wants to get to know somebody and they're like, you know, maybe I want to be with this person or I really want to be friends with this person, you invest. You're on their Instagram scrolling, looking at what they post. You're following them. You're trying to get on the phone with them. You're texting with them. You pursue them as somebody who is going to be influential in your life or a lover or a friend. And it's so critical that if we actually believe that Jesus has saved us and set our feet on dry ground and that our love needs to be fixed in Christ, that we would pursue that relationship. And then as that blossoms, it will lead you to this radical Jesus and this activism. So listen, baby steps, get to know Jesus. <laughs> I am like the stereotypical distracted guy meme when it comes to appendix and and notes and footnotes and books. I'm always like, what, what, where am I going to go now? What books am I going to buy yeah. next? Um, but I love that you have added that in there because when we're like, okay, I need to understand more cultural context, historical context. Where do I go? That is a great, great resource. Thank you for having this conversation. Tell us how we can support you, where we can find you, where we can find your book, all the things. Yeah, totally. Uh, website, jwbuck.org. Um, I co-lead an organization called PAX. Definitely follow us, madeforpax.org. The IG handles are the same for my name, J.W. Buck, or Made for PAX. Creating Christian content that's Jesus-centered for the next generation. You know, that's that's the goal of this book, aimed at majority culture Christians. And then Made for PAX is primarily targeted towards young people of color who are asking a different set of questions that the gospel addresses. Um, so those are a few places. And yeah, you know, pick up pick up the book, Everyday Activism. Um, anywhere books are sold. I was really happy to write it with Baker. It was a great experience with them. And uh, I hope it's an encouragement to anybody who cares about justice and is like really busy and broken and trying to figure out what to do. Yeah, that's us. That's all of us. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate this conversation. Appreciate your time and just the amount that you have invested in putting that this message in the world. It's a vulnerable thing. And um I just know that it's going to find its way to the people that need to see it and read it. And uh, God will use it. You know, you just never know. You never know where your words are going to end up and what God will do. So I just, I felt encouraged and challenged and I've appreciated this conversation. Thank you, Amy, so much for having me. You're welcome. I want to close out this conversation by sharing something Josh wrote in his new book. In one of the chapters in which he talks about the practices of Jesus that we can emulate, he talks about rest. Here's what Josh says. Everyday activists show their trust in the final work of Christ by embracing times of rest. We express our trust in the gospel by resting. We show our faith in Jesus by trusting that rest is an important act of worship so we can stay in the fight for justice. I think that's the perfect note to end this episode on. Thanks so much for listening. I wanted to remind you that we're in the middle of the Share the Show campaign, and I would love for you to participate. All you have to do 
is share an episode with a friend or leave a review or post about it on social media. You can do one or all of these things and then let me know. It's super simple. I'll leave a link for you to let me know in the show notes and it will be on the Untangled Faith webpage at untangledfaithpodcast.com slash share the show. That's untangledfaithpodcast.com slash share the show. If you click that link to let me know that you shared the show, you will be entered in a drawing for one of two $50 Amazon gift cards. I'll be doing that drawing on December 10th, so make sure that your name is sent in to me by the end of the day on December 9th, 2022. This is also a great time to join the Patreon community if you haven't. Patreon members get access to bonus audio, live streams, and replays of past live streams and other benefits. It's the main way this podcast is made possible. Check it out at patreon.com slash untangled faith. That's patreon.com slash untangled faith. I'd love to keep this conversation going over on Twitter or Instagram or through the Facebook page. I'm untangled faith on Instagram and Facebook and faith untangled on Twitter. You can find the show notes at untangledfaithpodcast.com. For more information about supporting the show, check out patreon.com slash untangledfaith. The Untangled Faith podcast is hosted and edited by me, Amy Fritz. A special thanks to my Patreon supporters. This podcast is made possible by their support. I also want to give a shout out to the producer level supporters, Michelle Pionic, Phil and Susan Perdue, and Pam Forsyth. Thank you guys. I'll see you next week.